This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R sponsors. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. to 102.73 Maybe you're listening via rrr.org.au. Time for this week's Radio Marinara. My name's Bron Burton. And my name's Dr Beach. Good morning, Dr Beach. Good morning, Dr Burton. <laughs> How are you today? I'm very well. Good. Before we go any further, I just uh, have to say I saw Banana Lounge Dave and the Coral Snakes last night <gasps> at the Corner Hotel and it was one of the most wonderful live listening it music experiences I have had in a long time. Oh. Send before, of course, but boy, that's a damn smooth outfit. Is it part of Leaps and Bounds? I think it might be. I think it is, yes. And I've been seeing great reviews of um, Michelangelo and Rob Smarsky at the Spiegel Tent, the uh, Collingwood Spiegel Tent. Collingwood yeah. Spiegel Tent, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Tony the mm. Anyway, Dave Graney. Who does, of course, Banana Land Broadcasting on this fair station? Yes, with Claremore, and they're doing. Um, you don't want to be that. You want to be there, but you don't want to travel. I believe. You know, you have these albums in your life yeah. that just take you right back to a point in time. That's a key one for me. Yeah. Mm, happy times. We got a show to do. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I did. Yes. We do have a show to do with a lot of science. Uh, yeah, a lot of science, a lot of um, very interesting things happening. Um, I want to, in the first segment, talk in particular about kelp forests and some of you might have seen in the news, I know the Guardian gave it some air and the ABC did, but there's a paper which appeared from a group in coming out of UWA, a whole bunch of people in science very recently on Thursday about the demise of the kelp forests on the West Coast um, and that can be directly linked to climate change. Mm. Yeah, I want to talk about that and if we have time... 
because I want to spend some time with it. After that, I want to talk about Graham Edgar's wonderful... So Graham Edgar is a scientist in Tasmania, and he has been coordinating a thing called the Reef Life Survey, where we have lots of volunteer divers taking coordinated censuses of marine life and how that wonderful work, which is all part of citizen science, but much more, is leading to some very significant papers. Mm. Has been for a couple of years, but there's one which appeared in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences a few weeks ago, which I'd like to have a look at. Excellent. Citizen science within a rigorous scientific framework. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. It's the best that you can And some really good stories in there of people who... A school teacher, for example, who is retired, (coughs) pardon me, loves diving and does heaps of this. Yeah, that's what I'll be doing. That's (laughs) what I'm aiming for. We are then going to cross to Bermagui. Bermagui, you spend some time there, don't you? Oh, as much as I possibly can. And we're going to be speaking with Karen Joins. Karen does a lot of things uh, coastal and to do with um, being a a good upstanding (laughs) member of the human race in trying to do what she can to protect the marine and coastal environment. What she's done is joined forces with a couple of people in different states uh, because of concerns relating to uh, helium balloons and their impact on not only the marine environment but other other aspects of the environment as well, terrestrial. And it, it actually has come about because of a few balloons which washed up um, not only uh, some in Bermagui um, but some other ones in Naruma from places that you will not believe. <laughs> so I came across this article in the Naruma News. I keep an eye on the Naruma News. As we all do. Yes, from the south, far south coast. I know there are local papers all around this wonderful country. but um, Is there a Bermagui bugle? Uh, there's a Bermagui Triangle, which right. is a local paper. It's just a little, it's a local A4, um, you know, locally published paper. Mm-hmm. It's not part of the leader group or any of the, the big local papers. Naruma News is a, a, is a standard local paper. Uh, anyway, there was an article in there about the work that Karen's doing to try and uh, draw attention locally to the problem with helium balloons, particularly the ones released at public events. They're the, they're the obvious ones. And there's the, the difficulty of people who have uh, helium balloons for personal kids' parties but also for memorials as mm-hmm. well. And uh, anyway, we're going to talk to Karen all about that and the campaign that she's running with two people from different states. They're trying to kind of get a real national approach to this happening. A good thing. Yeah. We're then going to be uh, speaking with P.T. Hirschfield. Um, you might remember P.T. being on the program a couple of weeks ago talking about the spider crabs in Port Phillip Bay. She's going to give us a little uh, wrap-up because I do believe they've left the building, but um, also about some um, activities she's involved in next weekend. This is the second inaugural International Women's Diving Day. <laughs> <laughs> so P.T.'s going to be uh, involved with that and also um, doing a talk down at, uh, in Warrnambool as a part of those events. So we're going to be having a chat with PT about that. Got some weather for us, Dr Beach? Uh, I have. It's a bit, little bit misty out there. Not quite a lurid yellow mist, but it's, um, <laughs> it's quite cool. <laughs> nice. 7 to 12 degrees. It's going to, it's going to be wet just in time for um, junior football starting this afternoon where I'm going to be running around as trainer. Oh, very good. Yep, starting at 1 o'clock. And, yeah, it's, I think it's going to be pissing down by then. Fantastic. Are you a new recruit for next year's uh, Community Cup lineup for oh, 90 megahertz, Dr. Beach? I, I was thinking about it again, watching it the other day, and you know, people say, hey, do it, do it. I said, I don't want to be broken. But then oh. I look out there and there's lots of people, you know, who could be broken, who are not broken, and it's 
I don't know. I might. JVG played last year. You know that, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. That's all right. We're officially in pre-season now. I haven't been on air since then, but what? Yeah, that was a fun day, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, that was quite. I, it's I always a fun day. Yeah, even though. Sorry, the, I've interrupted even, your even, wonderful even, weather report. Even though the hurts last. Um, yeah, so today it's going to be wet. Ninety uh, percent chance of you know around ten mil or something like that. Tomorrow is going to be eleven degrees to fifteen degrees. Shower or two, bit windy. Tuesday, 10 degrees to 12 degrees, showers easing, possible shower on Wednesday, 11 degrees. So cool and a little bit damp. Nice, classic Melbourne winter. Indeed. I'm loving it. A little bit of fog around in the mornings just to you know, make us snuggle under that doona a bit more. And avoid getting up. And avoid getting up, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, if you're going out on the water, it's going to be low tide pretty soon in about 20 minutes down the heads of Point Lonsdale. Excellent. Thanks, Dr. Beach. Well, that's, that's always a hey, pleasure. Hey, and thank you, Tim. Very neglectful of uh, of me to forget to thank Tim for Vital Bits. Yeah. I know it's, it's very late to be doing that in our program, but... Um, well, yes. it's, it's only 9.09 and 25 <laughs> seconds. It's not that bad. Now, shall we listen to some music and then come back and launch into this, or do you want to do a quick news first? Uh, quick news, just as kind of a... Yeah, we're going to play a track which is relevant to the, um, the great southern continent. Now, and I noticed in the, pa- in the paper yesterday, Bob Hawke's beautiful, wizened old face there, page 25 of The Age, reminding us, and it's not kind of really blowing his own trumpet, I guess it might have been a bit, but a very wonderful thing that I think we can all be very proud of, mm. which happened back in 1989, where there was a whole lot of people, well, the world essentially wanted to start mining Antarctica, and Australia led the led the um, the campaign to stop that, and that was very successful. Um, it's not happening now, um, at least not for the moment, and something we should always keep a watch on, but we have Bob Hawke in no small part to thank for that, and many other people who, of course, got involved in that campaign, and Chris Mitchell, I know you did too, if you're out there listening, um, but what a good thing that was. Very important to remember these things. Yeah, 27 years ago. Yeah. Have we had a call? Did we? Yes, didn't catch your name, so apologies for that. But um, someone rang in regarding helium balloons mm-hmm. and made reference to the fact that uh, this is really starting to gain momentum in Europe as well. So uh, we can have a chat with Karen Jones about that shortly. We can. Mm. We often talk on the show about reefs as in coral reefs, but I'd like to draw it back to what we describe as our great southern reef, and that is the the rocky shores that we have going along the southern half of our continent, mm. all the way along the, the west to east strip, the great, you know, a couple of thousand kilometres, and then also up the coast. So we have rocky shores which have kelp beds, lots of big kelp beds and kelp beds. We've talked about a number of times on this program have wonderful, huge, big brown algae, seaweeds. I love seaweeds, you know, any opportunity I can talk about seaweeds. Things which rejoice in the names of Davilia and Macrocystis, mm. and they form <laughs> these fantastic huge kelp forests and in those forests there's lots and lots of habitat of course and along with that habitat we have many different animals and plants living in that and they are very important if we want to think just for ourselves and making money for lobster fisheries for example abalone fisheries and many many other things those reefs are in danger and this has been very clearly um, documented by a group in the University of Western Australia and other people of CSIRO, for example, a whole bunch of people at WA. Uh, and this has just been published last Thursday in the prestigious journal Science and a paper entitled Climate-Driven Regime, Sh- Regime Shift of a Temperate Marine Ecosystem. These guys, and the paper's been led by a guy called Thomas Vernberg and Scott Bennett from WA, they've been doing surveys since well, for about the last 14 or 15 years of these kelp beds 
um, in WA looking at it. And they start up near Calbarry. Calbarry is just before you get to the point of WA where it starts to turn the corner and head oh, back yep. up to the right-hand side. So it's quite a way north. Yep. Um, latitude's about 27 degrees or something, I think. Exmouth? Is it sort of around there? Up towards there. Yeah. Calbarry's just a little bit below that. Right. So from north of Calbarry, you have traditional, well, not traditional, but you have coral-based tropical reefs, tropical ecosystems. And south of that, up until the last few years, we have the, the start of the great southern rocky reefs, and this has been dominated by kelps, kelp forests and all the different animals that live in those forests. They've been doing surveys since about 2010, I mentioned, and they went back a few years ago after... So there was a... You might remember there was a very warm period... Um, in the in the oceans, particularly in WA. So the climate change affecting the temperature of the ocean seems to be kicking in more for various physical reasons in WA than it is on the, on the right-hand side of the continent, over on our side of the continent. Mm. And there were very, very warm periods, 2011, 2012 and 2013, and in particular the summers there. And they went back and surveyed, and they've been doing this for a number of years, and looked for kelp forests up around Kelbarry, where there have been vigorous, happy, healthy kelp forests, and found, much to their dismay, that they'd actually disappeared. They had gone. Mm. And what was left in their place was turf, sort of algal turf, and the kinds of fish that you might see further north around the corals were starting to come down into the southern region, so the region where the kelp had gone. So I can imagine we're now turning an ecosystem, as somebody said in one of the papers that I was reading reviewing this, um, it's like we're taking a forest and converting it into grassland. Mm. And this is what's happened here. And this has... So in since that really warm period, 2011, 2012, 2013... It's kind of gone back to, to normal, if you like. So the temperatures, the surface temp, the, the temperatures of, of the water have gone back to more around 20 degrees up there, which is about the limit of kelp growth. Um, and are the, is the kelp are responding? The kelp are not responding oh, at all. Oh, right, wow. So there has been... So this is why this paper is entitled a climate-driven regime shift. So right. they are not coming back. So we've lost about 100 kilometres of kelp forest on the left-hand wow. side. 100 kilometres? 100 kilometres in length, and that's about 2,800 square kilometres, which has entirely gone. And coming back to what you were saying at the beginning, this is not just a bunch of algae which is not there anymore. It's an, an entire ecosystem. It is an entire, and, yeah. And likening it to what people will probably better understand because they've seen it, is it would be like going, say, down to the Otways or out to East Gippsland and having an area which was once a big forested area with all sorts of, you know, native um, animals and plants living in it. Nothing. Gone. Yeah. And no ability, this is the question, so no ability to actually recover itself. No, and one of the reasons for this is that the temperature, well, once the temperature goes up, it kills the, the kelps. They were killed consistently for about three years. There was no regeneration. Mm. And the regeneration has been even harder now because you've got fish like parrotfish, the more tropical ones which live in the corals, are moving further south. Mm. And they are really, really good at doing their job in a coral environment of grazing all the new algae which start to grow on the corals so they keep it nice and clean. Yep. But when you put them in a situation where you've got young kelps trying to regenerate, they are also doing that job very well of picking off all the young kelp plants, yes. kelp seaweeds, so they're not coming back. 
Same problem happening over um, in the Aware Reef Marine Sanctuary. We were talking about this last week on the program. Uh, in terms, same thing. So with this um, uh, sudden arrival of a particular type of urchin, which has come down sort of from the southern New South Wales coast and moved into Victoria, and you're seeing a similar thing where you once had... Uh, areas that were covered in kelp are now completely denuded because these urchins come in and they just graze and graze and graze and just take out everything in its path, in their path. This is slightly different because it's because of the sort of the infestation of this species that has never lived there before. Yeah. But again, a, a dire consequence of. Well, that's right. You do get warming. these regime shifts from mm-hmm. that kind of thing happening where you might have human induced impact or. So another good example is in California with the kelp forests there. A lot of those were in demise for a long time because people were taking out otters. The otters were going. What the otters were doing there was eating the sea urchins. Um, When the otters Mm. were gone, the sea urchins took off, so the sea urchins were doing their job very well of grazing and getting rid of the new kelps. Mm. Kind of a similar thing is happening here, but it's been driven by climate change, Mm. by this change in temperature, so not some kind of human-induced... Well, it is human-induced, of course, for us you know, burning coal with alacrity and fossil fuels, but this is the first direct link to that. And what's perhaps even... I mean, this is really of concern, but when you look at the map, it's virtually all the way down to Perth mm. that we have a real demise in the kelp forest. So they've completely gone in that top 100 kilometres um, off WA, but then if you, when they do the censuses heading down to, to Perth, the surveys, the kelp forests there have reduced... 20, 30%, um, 40% further north. And the worry is that as we continue to warm mm. and these events will continue to happen, yep. that we're going to lose kelp forests in WA. And then perhaps on the East Coast, as I said, the, for various different physical reasons, it appears to climate change appears to be well, that the, the water, the temperature of the water is increasing more rapidly off the West Coast than it is off the East Coast. But once things get to the next level, then it could start happening at the east coast. Mm. And then, you can, so you can imagine, picture you know, map of Australia, and the bottom half on the left, the bottom half of it, look at the left and the right hand side. That's where we have kelp forests. So they're gradually moving down. And once they get, once that shift moves to say below Perth to Cape Lewin, and once it moves down to say Point Hicks on the right hand side, mm. on the eastern side, then we open up the possibility of because we have this, the bottom half of Australia, the, the you know, bottom half of our continent, the southern bit, is all kind of at, more or less at the same latitude. Mm. Once that shift gets to that point, then we're going to lose potentially all the kelp forests. That's right, along the along southern, the southern bit coast in one fell swoop. Yep. it would just go bang because it's all about the same latitude. That's Whereas right. now we're seeing the the north, well, the the decline towards the south. Yep, happening kind of gradually, but. What about the potential um, uh, mitigating impact of Bass Strait and Antarctic waters, waters, or even sub-Antarctic waters, so waters coming up from the Southern Ocean to... Might there be a potential mitigating effect along the south coast that you might not see kind of as you head up the east and west coasts? Uh, possibly, yes, but there's also kind of a counter-mitigating effect or a forcing effect is that you think most of our weather comes from the west. Right, and we have this so movement from the, from, the from the west, Ocean. yeah, from the Indian Ocean, which yep. is getting warmer, yep. moving across towards the east along the southern half of our continent. Mm. So that could actually force things a little bit Oof. more. Scary stuff. Kelp forests are beautiful things, um, and 
you and have. important and, and really important so important stuff. Yep. Yep. one other paper that I'd like to touch on um, is one which appeared from Graham Edgar's group and Graham Edgar is another one of our fantastic marine scientists he works out of Tasmania um, he's with the um, Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies at he's Tas a, Uni. He's a superstar amongst a, marine ecologists. Yeah. Yeah. He's very cool. And by the way, I was down in Tassie at MOFO about a month ago. <gasps> Did you go to Dark MOFO? Yes. Did you? It was good fun. But what I saw there was this beautiful shed that's part of the, you know, down on the waterfront, which Tas Uni have. All their kids have to, you know, the students who are studying marine science and Antarctic studies study right there on the waterfront. Mm -hmm. And there is the. Aurora Australis is the ship that goes down to Tas down to Antarctica. There, there was the Lastrolobe, the French ship was moored there. I said, what a stimulating, wonderful environment it would be to to do those studies. Anyway, Graham Edgar from Tas Uni has published a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences uh, entitled Biodiversity Enhances Reef Fish Biomass and Resistance to Climate Change. This is a very important paper which mm. has shown for perhaps the first time that looking at a wild situation to looking at what's happening in the environment as opposed to a model that you might have in the lab or stuff which is happening in a, in a, in a contrived situation, that when you have more biodiversity, so when you have more different species there, that that actually leads to a greater biomass of... And he's just looking at fish here. Mm. And, again, if we want to be selfish, I mentioned before with the kelp beds, if we think about the abalone industry and the rock lobster, rock lobster industry being dependent upon kelp beds. If we're counting biomass, we're thinking about the size of fish and the numbers of kind of big fish at the top of the food chain that we can take. But this is, he has proven, along with lots of other people, all the data they've gathered in the Reef Life Survey, which I will talk about in a second. I'm kind of prefacing this too much a little bit. <laughs> but they have shown that the more diversity you have, then the more biomass you have in the environment. And people have known that, they've kind of suspected this is true, but they've been able to prove this through this wonderful thing which Graham Edgar set up with a number of other people. Perhaps, I think it was about 15 years ago, this survey has been going for 15 years, which is called the Reef Life Survey. Mm. Now, anybody can get online, punch it into your favourite search engine, Reef Life Survey, and you will learn a lot about this, but what it is that they they now have, I think it's two and a half. That well, this paper is using data which has been gathered from four thousand five hundred and fifty six standardised fish surveys to test the importance of biodiversity to fish production, which is relevant to twenty five environmental drivers. I'm just reading from the paper here, but what they've done is they've used almost five thousand different surveys in about two thousand different habitats all the way around the world. A lot of this is concentrated in Australia, but there have been many surveys, and you can see the map on the web page. Um, in other parts of the world, Spain, Mediterranean, all the way around the US, even down in Antarctica, up in the Arctic Circle, where people have been trained to get in the water. So these are recreational dry, uh, divers who want to contribute to science, and that many of us do in many different fields, You know, even if it's just looking at sort of Google for identifying galaxies. We are citizen scientists by doing that. Mm. But there are people who, for their weekends, for fun, will get out there and they will dive. And they've been, they've been trained by these people to swim along a transect that's 25 metres long and to count every fish and identify every fish greater than 2.5 centimetres in size within a 5 metre region of that line. Everybody's recording the same in the same way, so you're getting this standardised methodology, which is something which is very hard to get in any other way. Mm. Um, if you go to the website, you'll see there's all these, these 
um, Excel spreadsheets there with all the species names punched in it that you that you would find in a particular state. People record what they see using a bit of plastic, a bit of white plastic and a pencil, very simple methods, go back, punch it into the spreadsheets. It's all uploaded to this database and a fantastic amount of data has been accumulated, really important data, and Graham uh, with Emmett Duffy and a number of other people have used this particular suite of data to publish this very significant paper, which is showing us for the first time, as I mentioned, that in the wild, as opposed to some kind of situation which has been manufactured in the lab or in a tank, Mm. um, that the more biodiversity you have, that is the more numbers of species which are feeding from different niches, different ecological niches, the more of that you have, then the more biomass, the more fish weight that you have in an environment. Which is an indication of the health of that particular ecosystem in question. And we see this throughout the world in, you know, lots of different environments, terrestrial as well as marine. Um, But this is the biggest survey which has proved it so far, Mm. which is why it's in that very illustrious journal, the PNAS. Very, yeah. So thanks, Graham for contributing that. Yeah. I'd like to get Graham on the show. We should get him on the on the blower. We had him on years ago, mm. long, long time ago, but we should definitely get him back on. He is a superstar yep. of, uh, of marine. And again, I think this is an open access paper Ecology. if anyone wants to look at it. If you just punch in the letters P-N-A-S, um, <laughs> it might come up and then put in G J Edgar. We always have a bit of a a giggle at that acronym, don't we, Dr. Beach? Just a little bit, but yeah, I'm I'm quite mature. I'm not going to giggle at that this morning. I've I've been seeing a very mature band last night, (laughs) Dave Brainy, so I'm not going to. Yeah. Excellent. Hi, I'm David Suzuki, and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3 R 102.7 FM. Nice. Hey, quick bit of news. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to get Karen Joins on the phone from Permagui. This is from a, uh, a little while ago, and I've been hanging on to it um, for no other reason other than I just haven't quite got to it. But it's actually quite encouraging positive news to come out of San Francisco. They have become the first city in the US uh, to ban the sale of plastic bottles. Wow. So it's pretty significant. I thought that had, um, I thought California in general had done that. Or... I don't think it's the entire state. Right. Yeah. But San Francisco, first city to ban the sale of plastic bottles. So this is the plastic water bottles. They're everywhere. We all know what they are. It'll take them four years, but they're going to ban the sale of plastic water bottles that hold 21 ounces or less in public places. So I'm wondering if this also includes... uh, Hey, Narita. (laughs) Narita's paneling for us today. She's kind of gesticulating wildly at me. 21 ounces is quite big. But uh, anyway, look, it's it's moving in the right direction. Violators of the ban are facing fines of $1,000. Uh, that would be US. But uh, anyway, look, we've got to move in a positive direction, don't we, Dr Beach? We do. Yep. This is Radio Marinara on 3RRR. Now, earlier this year in March, we brought you the story of the remarkable 16-year-old Sophie Dye from the Gold Coast who kicked off a local campaign to put an end to the public release of helium balloons and balloons that end up in the oceans and other waterways and pose a direct threat to wildlife. This week, the Naruma News on the south coast of New South Wales reported three more women from different states who've all joined forces to plead with the Australian government to put an end to the public release of helium balloons once and for all. We're now crossing to speak with Karen Joins from Bermagui on the New South Wales South Coast. She's joining us now to talk about this growing campaign. Good morning, Karen. Good morning, Bron. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And yourself? Yeah, very well, thank you. Welcome to Triple R. 
How did uh, how did you come to be involved in this uh, particular issue of helium balloons? Are they a problem in Bermagui? Um, well, actually, I've been uh, collecting garbage off beaches for 20 or 30, maybe 40 years, and I've noticed a, an increasing number of balloons. Um, uh, two years ago, I collected balloons that had travelled from Albury, and as a result of that, I got in touch with a group called Tangaroa Blue, um, where they um, asked people to tally the type of garbage that they collect. Um, so over the last two and a half years, I've been keeping tabs on how many balloons I've collected um, and it's been increasing and um, it just seemed when there was a, a release um, during the elections, a politician released some in, in the Northern Territory and a few other things happened and so I just got so determined to have something happen that um, I got onto the internet and realised that I wasn't alone, that there were many other groups and scientists and um, the Lord Howe Island Museum, for example, they're all trying for similar sort of things. And I thought, well, we need a national approach. So that was basically how it came about. Yeah. That's right. And that's that real difference that we talk about sometimes on this program between um, federal and national. So federal being the overarching government that sort of comes from Canberra, but national when you've really got everyone who bands together, not necessarily under a federal umbrella. And it's that difference between the two, which is the approach that you're taking. I was thinking for our listeners, who haven't listened to me wax lyrical over the years about Bermagui because I've done that quite a lot. You're a long way from a major city, aren't you? We are, yes. We're um, sort of 400 kilometres from Sydney and uh, probably 700 from Melbourne. Um, but even so, I've collected balloons from a radio station in Sydney and a community group in Sydney, a pizza shop in Melbourne. So um, we're not immune to the garbage that is thrown out by other people or released by other people. Uh, Karen, it's Dr Beach here. Hi, how are you going? Oh, good, thank you, yeah. Um, yeah, a wonderful campaign, and I noticed from the press of the bronze um, showed me that you also collected some in Birmingham, which are from the AFL, from the North Melbourne Football Club. Yeah, that was um, a bunch that was found in Narooma a couple of weeks back, yeah. <laughs> so they've travelled all the way. They've got, they've got obviously, they've got branding on them. Um, so from, I'm sure they'll be quite horrified to hear this, but, but North Melbourne Football Club balloons have ended up in... I mean, I suppose there's always the potential that they've been released from someone, maybe a North Melbourne fan who's had them blown up or something like that. Like, there's always that potential. But, I mean, the, the point being that you are finding these balloons from all over the place. And as you said, did you say pizza shop in Melbourne and they've washed up in Bermagui? That's right, yep. Wow. And the um, the ones from Albury, they were accidentally released at a football match as well. Um, it was a bunch of 14 balloons, so it was still legal in New South Wales. Um, a really strong nor'westerly wind at the time took them in a southerly direction and then a southerly change overnight brought them back to the coast. So in a straight line, it's 300 kilometres, but they travelled far more than that, and that was just in a matter of hours. Karen, you just mentioned that 14 balloons were still legal in New South Wales. Mm -hmm. so, so is there a, a, an illegal number of balloons that one can release at the moment? There is a restriction in place? In New South Wales, there is. The, um, it's up to 20 balloons is all right. Now, this is, I've been writing letters to the Ministers for Environment and um, the EPA, the Environment Protection Authority, saying, well, just one balloon can cause damage. Yeah, one cigarette butt is illegal, but so why can you uh, litter 19 balloons? Um, and many people don't realise that there is that law in place. Uh, the EPA always 
replies that they think it's a fair balance between protecting the environment and a person's right to celebrate. But um, I'm afraid I don't agree with that. So that's a New South Wales regulation. I'm, I'm just wondering, I've, I've got no idea what the regulation is in Victoria. Brian, I think New South Karen. Wales is the only state with that regulation. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Because if you had even the number of 20, I find fascinating. Because if you took 20 pieces of litter and threw them out of your car, you, by law, can have somebody write your number plate down and you'll get a whopping great fine in the mail. But for some reason, it's considered to be okay to release them into the air when they're going to come down to the, to, to, to the ground anyway. Exactly. And the, um, the EPA recognises that and um, tries to um, stop people from doing it, but they they seem to think that people have this right to release balloons into the atmosphere. We haven't really kind of focused yet on, so it's litter, but what's particularly bad about balloons? Well, besides the litter, if they come back to Earth, if they land in a waterway, they, they're a threat to marine animals. Um, turtles mistake them for jellyfish or squid. Um, there's also been documented cases of a cow um, dying from... It choked, it's, the string was tied around its tongue and, it, uh, and its neck and it choked. Oh, my God. Um, there's wow. another case in America where a horse was spooked by balloons landing in its field and it took off and um, it had to be put down because it was so badly damaged. Um, and also the Australian um, platypus conservancy has um, documented cases of platypus dying from being um, strangled by the streamers as well. And researchers for platypuses have found um, many balloons in really remote waterways in the, in the high country areas. Now, aside from the litter issue itself, there's also a real issue with the use of helium, isn't there? Because it's, it's a non-renewable resource. It's needed for really important things like running MRI machines and, and other scientific equipment. So there's this other, other issue in tandem, isn't there? There is. There's been um, a number of scientists around the world asking for um, sensible use of helium. They, they haven't, some haven't come out directly and said ban the use of helium for balloons, but others have. There's um, a couple in the UK that have done that. Um, yeah, so it's, it's um, forms in the Earth's crust, and so once it's extracted, it, because it is so light, it makes a beeline for outer space. So once it's extracted from the Earth's crust, it can, it's easily lost. And that's um, in tandem with that is the balloons that are inflated with helium are so light, they're very easily released as well. As people, no one? Know, like it's not just necessarily mass releases. It's just like one woman told me how she was going to a party and she opened the car door and one balloon escaped. So that's going to land somewhere and, and cause problems. That's right. I wanted to mention your partners in this. So um, Amy Motherwell in Victoria and Lisa Hills in Western Australia. How did you all come across each other? Was it via the internet? Yes, it was. When I um, got worked up about the um, helium balloons, I... Um, contacted various people asking, you know, we, we need a national approach, what can we do? And the Lord Howe Island Museum curator Ian Hutton suggested I contact Amy and another um, a worker at the Zoo Victoria suggested I contact Amy, so I did that. And then she suggested I contact Lisa, so yeah, it was sort of all in a roundabout way. Now Lisa's making some headway in getting some local councils in Western Australia to create some bylaws uh, banning balloons at public events. Is, is that something that you're considering doing with Bega Valley Shire Council? 
earlier this year, a, a councillor who is um, environmentally aware tried to get something up, and um, the best that happened was that they're going to educate helium balloon distributors and um, dis try to um, steer people away from balloon releases on public land. So they they don't seem to think that they can ban the ban balloon releases on public land. And because it's um, their jurisdiction is only for public land, they can't stop private events from releasing balloons. Well, uh, in the in the meantime, we can have a look at um, some of the work that you're doing. So you've got a petition going with Change.org. Do you want to um, tell our listeners about that? Uh, actually, the Change.org is the one that Amy Motherwell's got going. Right. Um, the petition I've got going is the written petition that goes to the Australian Parliament. Um, they're two separate petitions. Now, the issue with this one is it has to be paper-based, doesn't it? Yes, it's the Australian Parliament. I'm not sure if it's just they haven't caught up with modern technology or if it's to show how determined people are that they're willing to print the petition out and go around and ask people to actually sign up. <laughs> If, uh, yeah. if our listeners want some more information, uh, what's the best thing that they can do to help you with that? Because I, I know, Karen, that there'll be a lot of people listening who will just want to get on board and, and do what they can um, to help with this. The fact that it needs to be paper-based signatures to go to the Australian Parliament as you say, is, is potentially uh, an issue for you. Um, if there are people who are happy to, to download a petition and get people to sign it and send it through, what's the best way they can do that to help you? That would be the best way. Um, we've got a Facebook page, No Balloon Release Australia, and if they send me a private message with their email address, I'll um, email the petition out to them. Um, we also have a, a JPEG copy on, the, on that site. Um, it may not be as clear as um, the emailed version, but I, um, it's still acceptable. Great. So No Balloon Release Australia, and we will put a link to your Facebook page on our Facebook page um, right. and also onto our website on um, via the, the Triple R page as well. Karen, thanks so much for joining us. It's been fantastic, and I really hope to keep in touch with you um, and maybe touch base. I'm hoping to come up to Bermagiri in September, so maybe we can sit down over a coffee and have a chat more about it. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> all right, we'll put all those links on our page. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. Okay, Thank we'll ca catch up yeah. soon. Thank, th th thank you. Bye-bye. Bye for now. There you go. That was uh, Karen Joins. I have wondered if there's been any kind of restrictions on balloons. I mean, I've been to a few events in the last couple of years where people have let them off. I was like, oh, what's happening to all it's that? It's that emerging of consciousness about this that all of a sudden people, I think, are, everyone is starting to think, well, I would like to think everyone is starting to think, but more people are starting to think this is actually not a good idea. Yeah, and I didn't realise the, the whole end. shortage of helium thing. Yeah. Either. I mean, we're getting there with, you know, we've got there with polystyrene. People generally are choosing not to buy polystyrene anymore. This, to me, is the, the next obvious, easy next step. Yeah. Hi, this is Wayne Lynch, and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. I love hearing that one. Thanks, Marinara. <laughs> she knows that one always makes me smile. Now, 12 months ago, the inaugural Paddy Women's, Women's Dive Day event, you was going to trip over that one, marked an historic day for diving. In its first year, the uh, event featured uh, events from across 65 countries and all seven continents, with women and men from Alaska to Argentina, France to the Philippines, all enjoying a day of diving together to celebrate the contributions of women to the uh, sport. Now, it's, of course, it's not 
just a sport. It's a, a wonderful activity that doesn't necessarily have uh, sport behind it. Anyway, next weekend, second International Women's Diving Day will take place. Daktari Surf and Dive in Warrnambool is planning some special women's dives event, dive events and special guest speaker with dinner on the Saturday evening. To tell us more, we welcome back to Triple R, P.T. Hirschfield. Good morning, P.T. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Dr. B. Hi, P.T. How are you going? Great. I don't think I've ever stumbled over an introduction more. I probably should have read, read that one a few times. Anyway, look, before we get into next weekend's festivities, last time we had you on the program, we were talking about spider crabs in Port Phillip Bay. What's what's the latest? Have we still got them around or have they all gone? Yeah, last time I was just about to get into the water from Blair Gowrie Pier and while we maybe saw a thousand of them, we really didn't see the tens and hundreds of thousands that we'd seen in the previous weeks. By that stage, maybe 75% of the crabs had molted and uh, so they were well and truly heading back out in their big safety number clusters back out into the depths. We did have fantastic local dive operation red boats with the BBC crew on board and they were able to track large groups of the crabs beginning their long journey back to southeast of Blair Gowrie, heading back into the depths of Port Phillip Bay. I guess the last we saw them was at about 20 metres depth, but then there was a bit of bad weather that meant that we um, kind of lost sight of them. But that pretty much signalled the end of the sightings for this season in that area. Now, uh, since uh, we've uh, spoken with you, uh, you've been diving in Indonesia and specifically Bali. I wanted to ask you about that before we uh, talk about next weekend's festivities. Yeah. So, so I, I actually went with the same group, um, Warrnambool um, group called Daktari Surf and Dive and a friend of mine, Shade, who organised a fantastic group trip. And so I got to go and dive to London at the Liberty Wreck and we also did some of the fabulous statue gardens and coral gardens um, around that area. And I've got some photos up on my blog at, at pinktankscuba.com of that trip. But we also went over to uh, Noosa Panita and Noosa Lembongan and I got to dive with um, probably eight mantas in a big mating trail. Oh, wow. Anxious boys following a, a very pregnant female and all coming at very close range and it was just such an exciting um, encounter with some really magnificent marine creatures. Have you got some photos of those up on your blog? There are photos up on the blog. It's actually the first post on the blog page, so you'll be able to navigate to it pretty easily. Sensational. And I'm just finishing up a video of, of myself playing with that massive train of uh, mating uh, ritual mantras at the moment that will go up in the next week or so. I've got to tell you, PT, we're all having a bit of a giggle here. This, this kind of wonderful image of this train of mantras and all the boys kind of like <laughs> sniffing behind the girl, a bit of a heavily pregnant woman. Oh, sensational. <laughs> now let's... And boy, those guys can dance. Like, they, they really they really are trying to impress her. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's something that you really want to see on video, but if you ever get the chance to see that kind of behaviour for yourself, it's absolutely breathtaking. Oh, mantas are... I haven't, di- I haven't had that experience. I have dived with manta rays before, and they are absolutely spectacular. They're an absolute... You know, they're, they're a, a, a... Yeah, wonderful. Anyway, better focus. <laughs> I could go on about this for ages. International Women's Diving Day. Now... This this is obviously an event planned for the Northern Hemisphere because the water is extremely cold down here at this time of the year. But what's happening next weekend? It is. 
So this is an event not just for women only, but to celebrate women's participation and contribution in the world of diving. So boys are more than welcome to come along and get involved. And last year for the inaugural event, I was invited as a special guest of Let's Go Adventures in Nelson Bay, New South Wales. And we dived at Fly Point, and then it was absolutely freezing, as you said. And then we went out the next day to the beautiful Grey Nurses at Broughton Island. And once again, this year's events are being held all over the world, which you can find an event near you if you Google Women's Dive Day. Um, but for next weekend's event, I'm going to be at Warrnambool with Daktari Surf and Dive for some fun free diving and presentation events across the weekend. On the Saturday, we've got um, all women divers, but male divers are more than welcome to come along as well, um, are invited to join us for a 3 p.m. dive at South Beach Bay. And even if you're not a diver, you're welcome to come in and get into the water and snorkel. And then for girls and boys, divers and non-divers alike, at 7pm there's a free dinner event, which will either be pizzas or barbecue. There'll be giveaways, a lucky door prize, and I'm going to be speaking and sharing some of the stories of my scuba versus tumour underwater adventures, including some of my underwater photography and video work. And then on the Sunday, again, boys and girls all invited to join us for two dives in Portland beginning at 10am. So it's going to be a fantastic weekend. Sounds amazing, PT. Um, you obviously need to be qualified as a scuba diver to take part in the dives, but you can go down there if you want to and um, put on a dry suit or a very thick wetsuit and do some snorkelling too. Absolutely. Yeah, the more the merrier. And even if you're not interested in getting cold and wet on a winter day, um, that, that 7 p.m. dinner and presentation night is available for anyone in the community who's interested to come along. Fantastic. Hey, thanks, PT. It's been wonderful having you on again. Um, you, I know you've had a bad cold. You've had a shocking flu. And thanks so much for, for drugging yourself up this morning and, and being on air with us. And uh, we'll catch... Oh, you're very welcome. And I uh, want to catch up with you after next weekend to find out how it all went. And, um, and can... Yeah. Yeah, and, and continue our chats with you because uh, we, do, we do love them so much. Have a great time next weekend. Thanks so much, Bron. If anyone wants more information about how to get involved, just go to the Pink Tank Scuba Facebook page for the pinned post or they can contact Daktari Surf and Dive in Warrnambool. Great. Thanks and so much. We'll put those details on our Facebook page too. Thanks, PT. Thank you. Okay, chat soon. Bye. P.T. Hirschfeld there. Thanks so much to her uh, for today and also to Karen Joins from Bermagui Landcare. Thank you, Dr. Beach. It's been a pleasure. It's been wonderful. And um, thank you, Nerida, uh, who's been panelling. You can catch Nerida next Saturday night on Livewire from 10 till 12. And uh, thank you so much to Kent, who's been out there looking after the phones. He is our pod father. He'll have this program up as a podcast in uh, the next few hours. Stay tuned for Radiotherapy. Next week, uh, Angeline will be in the house along with Neil Blake. Um, we'll have lots to talk about. In the meantime, have a wonderful week and a wonderful Sunday. We'll catch you next week. Bye for now. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R Sponsors. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. 
truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.